Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast about what we learned running schools and how it might apply to the rest of the world. I'm Doug Lamov, and my guest today is William von Hippel. Bill von Hippel is the author of The Social Leap, the new evolutionary science of who we are, where we come from, and what makes us happy. It is, I'm just going to come out and say it, definitely one of the best two or three books I've read in the last few years. It is a fascinating study of a review of the evolutionary science, and it's incredibly relevant to running schools and running organizations. And I've been looking forward to this podcast for a long time. I wanted to ask Bill von Hippel about group formation, why we form groups, how our fundamental groupishness influences our daily behavior, how it structures the way that we, the way that our eyes are structured, the way that we gossip about one another. It's fascinating stuff, and I know that you're going to enjoy this interview, so let's get right into it. Bill von Hippel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, delighted to be here. So maybe I'll just ask you to start by, I'll tell you what I thought was the short version of evolution before I read the book, which it turns out is is very wrong. And this is one of my biggest epiphanies. We stood up on the savannah one day with big brains and opposable thumbs, and suddenly we outcompeted all the other animals and became the apex predator. One of your main points is that while that might be true, it leaves out the most important parts of the story, which is that evolution was a group process and that we evolved in groups, and without the group, we're weak. And one of the most interesting parts of this, which I I talk about with teachers all the time, is that this change began, oddly, with throwing rocks. Will you explain that? Sure. Yeah, it's a super interesting hypothesis that was bandied about almost for probably more than 40 years now. The idea that how do you go from a sort of individualistic ancestor like chimpanzees, they're group living as well, but they're nowhere near as connected as we are, to becoming more of a connected type of a species like us who cooperates really well. And there's a lot of important barriers to cooperation, one of which is free riding. How do you enforce it? Another of which is, well, what's the benefit? You have to have a situation where if I potentially sacrifice and cooperate with you, then I actually still do better than if I don't make that little sacrifice, right? Mm. And the the stars had never aligned in our ancestry. They aligned for lots of species. They aligned for bees. They aligned for ants. They aligned for hunting dogs. There's many, many species that cooperate really well. We hadn't come out of a very cooperative lineage, though. And what caused them to align was our capacity to throw stones. And what's so interesting about that is you, you don't give it much thought, but if you reflect on it, it's literally the most important invention in military history. It's the capacity to kill at a distance. And once you gain that capacity, then a large force of weak individuals can outcompete a small force of strong individuals. So if you know if you and I are on the savannah and there's a lion coming at us, and we let's say we have 20 of our best friends around, we could conceivably kill the lion, all 20 of us, but we're gonna a lot of us are gonna end up dead. But if if we could throw rocks at it and drive it away before it can ever touch us, if we could kill at a distance, that just changes everything. And so suddenly the benefits of cooperation massively outweighed the costs. And previous to that, they were kind of neutral. Like, yes, if the lion's attacking you and me, maybe you and I could fight better together, but maybe I could just hope you get stuck in his mouth while I'm running away, right? <laughs> so it wasn't at all obvious that cooperation would have benefited our ancestors in that same kind of a way. So group formation was an evolutionary imperative. The people who couldn't form groups successfully, I assume, perished, and the group formers became us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would have been enormous selection pressure on those folks who were just kind of isolationists or or disconnected or don't want to sacrifice for the group. They just would have been culled very rapidly. And one of the points in the book is that the growth of our brains in size and power is actually as much a result of this sort of social leap that we took when we realized that we could coordinate and cooperate together in groups as opposed to the cause of it, or that at least it's at very least it's an iterative process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's this virtuous cycle whereby, you know, after 3 million years in the savannah, we had only gained 70 grams of brain power. We'd gone from a 380 gram chimp brain to a 450 gram Australopithecus brain. That's 3 million years. In the next 3 million years, we went from 450 to 1350. We gained almost a kilo. And what that would have been is a little bit more brain helps you cooperate and work better. And then being by virtue being able to cooperate and work better, you can support that brain and you can power it and allow it to get even larger still. So those two things would have worked hand in hand in a really lovely kind of way. You just see the brain growth accelerating over that last three million years. And we're profoundly different from any other primate in terms of our group formation. Can you just talk about some of the ways that humans are fundamentally different currently or in prehistory? Yeah, so the we don't 
It's hard to see the groupishness of our hominin ancestors, those who, uh, we were a bushy, branchy tree. We weren't this linear thing. And none of them made it and we did. And now maybe we exterminated the rest of them. You know, we don't know, for example, why Neanderthals died out. We know that we interbred with them and we know they disappeared. But did they disappear because they couldn't handle the climate or because they couldn't handle us? Given the way we've exterminated every other megafauna we've ever come into contact with, it wouldn't be surprising if we exterminated them as well. And so our Maybe part of the story is our, our viciousness, but it's our effectiveness as well, right? And so if you look at the great apes, which is, of course, where our line comes from, they're, they're not groupy like we are. You've got gorillas, which form harems. You've got chimpanzees, which do form groups, but they're, they, they prefer, for example, to forge on their own. They prefer to do lots of problem solving on their own. They don't share well. They don't do those kinds of things that we do well. They started us in the path to our groupishness because they, they're much, much more effective when they're in the group. They're dangerous in a group. They're their dinner when they're on their own. So they like to stick with their own kind as well, but they don't work together well and they don't share well. And that's really with the discrepancy that that I believe started about three million years ago. I've sometimes heard the, the term eusocial used to describe us. I don't know if that's still a term that scientists use to describe the fact that we will sacrifice for the group and raise each other's young and care for the elderly. Right. And that's 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 sort of true. So we we're not really eusocial. We're not hypersocial like an insect, like uh, like many insects. Many aren't. But like bees or ants, they have an interesting genetic structure whereby they're more closely related to their sibling than they would be to their own offspring. And so they're they're evolutionarily motivated to be more helpful than we are. You know, human beings are just not the same. If you look at how many humans have abandoned their families, have been shot for being a traitor and running away from the front lines from doing the things that a bee would never do, a bee would just dive in. Right. But we're way more compared to a chimpanzee. We are that we're way more sacrificing for our group. We're, in my mind, we sit somewhere between a chimp on the one hand and a bee or an ant on the other hand. The drama of our groups, you could argue, is this tension between our groupishness and the, the need to work together and the fact that there's maybe it's natural selection versus sexual selection, which is and also our desire to sort of self to self-actualize and to rise and be the one who's chosen within the group to be. We need to be part of a successful group, but we'd also all like to be successful within the group. That's exactly right. And that's the, the fundamental tension is actually the topic of the book that I just completed a few weeks ago. So what I argue is exactly the point you're making, that one of the fundamental human tensions is between the need for autonomy, the need to do your own thing, to stand out a little bit, and the need for connection. And both of those things, they, they form this fundamental tension inside of us, inside all of us, that many other animals don't experience at all. So for example, a snow leopard has almost no desire for connection. It's just an autonomy machine. It lives by itself. And a bee has no desire for autonomy. It's a connection machine. It just works for the hive. We sit in this interesting space in between. I think it has all sorts of important effects on human happiness, etc. Could you talk a little bit more about group formation during prehistory? How did it work? What do we know about how groups were formed and reformed? You know, how, how I've heard you use the phrase fission fusion to describe them. Yeah, so to the best of our knowledge, and this is based off anthropological work all over the world, when Western anthropologists, or for that matter, even Eastern, but mostly Western anthropologists encountered small scale societies, people who didn't yet have the kind of fancy machinery and stuff that was available elsewhere. And when anthropologists encounter those small-scale societies, there's basically two varieties. And the focus is on what we call direct return societies. Those are societies that eat today what they killed today. They, they don't store food at all. Now, there are hunter-gatherers who store food. It typically means that they live in a place where, for example, in the Pacific Northwest, where there's huge salmon runs, it's going to happen for a very reliable time of year, and then it's not going to happen again. So if you want to survive the winter, you're going to kill as many salmon as you can, and you need to store them. That changes everything. And that's not what societies, human societies originally looked like. That wasn't possible. So if you look at these direct return societies, you see the same story over and over again, which is that they're wildly egalitarian, that everybody has equal rights, so to speak. Uh, you see a slight dominance of males over females because they're bigger and stronger, but it's only slight. It's nowhere near as big as it, it then became with agriculture. Everybody's opinion is as valuable as anybody else's. There's no natural leader who can enforce their will. If you're the smartest guy in our group and you have the best ideas, well, we'll keep listening to you. But if you start throwing your weight around, we're going to let you know that we think you're a schmuck and we're going to listen to you to the degree that we like you and find your ideas compelling. So, what that also means is that if you and I get along well, well, we're just going to stay in the group together. But if we start to not get along, I might go 
east when you go west. And you have to remember that these groups are always have have always been nomadic. You know, they're, they're not growing food, so there's no reason to sit sit in one spot. Animals move along. They end up using up the local water so- sources, or they end up running out of the local fruits or berries or whatever they've been picking. So they just move along. And what we see when we look at those groups that we've encountered in more modern times is that they move along anywhere from a few weeks later to a few months later, but they just pack up all their belongings and go. And of course, what that means is that they have very few belongings. And so those groups tend to, whenever they move along or if they, whenever they want to, they, they split off and join other groups. Now, they only join other groups of, of their same ethno-linguistic group. They never, outgroups are dangerous things. They never join up. If you're Hadza, you don't join up with Turkana. You join up with Hadza. You don't switch groups, right? Keeping that in mind, you know a whole lot of people in lots of different camps that are in your general area. And if you ever get sick of the people you're with, you can always head in that direction. So we have a conception of ourselves as part of a larger group, and there are smaller subgroups constantly forming and reforming within that larger group. Absolutely right. But the biggest danger to us evolutionarily was to be kicked out of the group. That's right. We think of being kicked out of the group as an awkward, inconvenient, maybe momentarily painful. It's a death sentence in, in evolutionary history, yeah. That's right. And so the way that we survive is by working closely with other group members, because as we were discussing earlier, we're just not effective beings on our own. If you know one person throwing rocks at a lion is going to end up in the belly of a very slightly bruised lion, yeah. 20 people throwing rocks in the lion can drive it off. And so you have to have a group. You can Humans are just not big enough and strong enough to work alone. And so what that means is that if your group abandons you, if they decide that you're a greater cost than you are benefit. Mm. You're, you're using more calories than you're bringing in, so to speak, then they're going to leave you behind at some point. And usually there's a process whereby when we look at hunter-gatherers, we see that they around the world, they follow the same process. The first thing that they'll start to do, let's say that you become a pain in the butt and you're, you're more cost than you're worth, that we start to make fun of you a little bit. Mm-hmm. If that doesn't work, we start to um, ostracize you. We act like you're not really there when you are there. If that doesn't work, we start to get violent towards you. And if that doesn't work, well, we either off you or you wake up one morning and you're alone. And so human beings have become incredibly sensitive to those first signs of rejection. When people start to tease you, if they ostracize you and won't talk to you when you're around. Our ancestors who ignored that are not our ancestors because they didn't succeed, you know, they didn't survive. So we have been heavily evolutionarily selected to be very sensitive to signs of rejection from other people. And when you look at it in modern studies, they'll have people play this like cyberball game on a computer where they're throwing a computer ball. They're not even in the same room as the person, throwing a computer ball back and forth. And when the other people stop throwing that ball to you, people feel bad. <laughs> you can see sense centers in their brain light up that are functionally equivalent to pain centers, even though they don't even know the people, because we didn't, we were never ostracized in our ancestral past by people we don't know, only by people who mattered to us a great deal. I find that so fascinating. You know, we live arguably in the most individualist culture, US, Australia, probably most individualist culture in the world, if you believe Hofstede's, you know, dimensions of society research. I don't know what you think about that. I think very highly of it. Yeah. At the most individualist time in societies, we're probably the most individualist humans that have existed. And yet a colleague of mine, Peps McRae, has a beautiful book on motivation in an education framework. And what he says is the greatest single influence on motivation and behavior is always the individual's perception of the group norms. That we're always looking for this signaling about like, are we included in the group? Are we high status in the group? Are we low status in the group? Are we on our way out? But for the most part, because we're so individualist, we often don't understand those signals when they're coming in and how profoundly they influence us. Yeah, we make, uh, and again, this is an argument that I make quite a bit in my upcoming book, is that we, we make the mistake in the modern individualist world that we live in, and I completely agree with you, we make the mistake because we don't need our neighbors anymore because we don't need our friends anymore. We don't cut them off, but we don't spend nearly as much time with them anymore. And so if you look at time spent alone, for example, even setting aside COVID, which was disastrous, but setting that aside, the trend is still very clear. Humans are spending much more time alone than they ever did in the past. And the the saddest thing about it is the more educated and wealthy you are, the more you do this. And that's a clear sign that you do it because you just don't need people anymore. If you're poor, well, you can't afford a dog sitter. And so you've got to look out for your friend's dog and they look out for yours. You know, there's all sorts of ways that you're required to interconnect. And that's exactly why connections started in our lineage, because we needed them. We couldn't survive without them. And the unfortunate thing is, again, remember, I mentioned the new book is about autonomy versus connection. Our desire for autonomy tends to push us away from people. And that's just not good for our happiness. I find that fascinating, especially in, I've been writing in, from a school's perspective. People talk a lot about, or you could say, attribute the difficulties of running schools now to the pandemic 
But actually, I think it's the epidemic of the smartphone that's causing the things that people attribute to the pandemic, which is social isolation, disconnection, resulting levels of anxiety, depression and loneliness among young people and the general feeling of disconnection, which actually, I don't know if you've seen Gene Twenge's research about how this sort of spike in these issues among young people sort of correlates exactly to the advent of the like button and the universality of social media. Yeah, I think this played an important role. I, that The trend was there before, but it's accelerated. Yeah. And so the thing is that what we have to do is is find a way, you know, if you want to argue against smartphones, you're, you're, you're never going to succeed. They're too handy, right? And they're fun. And so what, rather than fighting against them, we need to work with them and find a way to not have people replace their in-person socializing, but rather to supplement it. And so here's a perfect example. There's no way you and I are having this conversation without some pretty cool technology because we live so far apart. So this is perfect. This is a great supplement. But if you live across town, it would be awfully lazy of me not to just head over to your apartment or meet you at a coffee shop or something like that. And the downside is that these wonderful devices can induce that sort of laziness and, and start to replace our in-person socializing. If you don't mind, I'd love to just describe to you a really exceptional classroom that I share a video of it in the most recent book that I wrote. It's called Reconnect. It's about what, you know, it's about schools reconnecting students after a pandemic, but really about the epidemic of social media. The teacher is, his name is Denarius Fraser. He's just an exceptional teacher. He's teaching 11th grade math in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. And in the video, a couple of really fascinating things happen that strike me as just having real connections to things that you talk about in the book. So it starts with him. He puts a math problem up on the board and he says, these are two potential answers to this problem. Which one do you think is correct? Show me on your fingers, one or two. Everyone holds up their fingers and he says, interesting. Turn and talk to your partner. Which one do you think is correct and why? Go. And the room just crackles to life with this incredible energy that comes from, like, if you had asked me to do that as a high school student, I would have, let's say you're sitting next to me, I would have looked at you and thought, okay, let's have a little eye contact here and a moment where we decide whether we're really going to do this and we're really going to talk about dividing polynomials or whether we're going to like roll our eyes and be like, you know, be very hesitant and maybe talk about something else or be like, I'm not really going to do this. But that doesn't happen in this video. The room just crackles to life, which I think tells you. So he has installed this procedure for turn and talk that's become a routine. And the routine has become a habit and then a norm. And so the students, the crackling to life shows that the students, they believe in the social norm, that their partner is going to talk to them. And that makes them risk tolerant and willing to try things that, you know, other teachers might not get students to do. After they do the turn and talk, they have a little discussion. One student participates, and then he asks another student to go next. And the next student says, you know, I agree with Vanessa because... And we, we talk a lot with teachers about how important this signal is that the, the, the student says, I, you know, lots of times when you call on a student in the classroom, the student will say, what I was going to say is, which is a way of saying what Vanessa just said is, ir- is irrelevant to me. Like, I don't, I'm going to say what I was going to say even before she spoke. It doesn't matter. You know, her, what she said didn't influence me at all. But this phrase, you know, I agree with Vanessa because I want to, or even I disagree with Vanessa because tells Vanessa that what she said was important to the group. I'm just thinking about Peps McRae's phrase. Perception of a group norm is the greatest influence on motivation and behavior. Fast forward a little bit. By the way, while students are talking there, one of the things that Denarius does in this classroom is he asks students to track one another, which means like to look at each other and just be attentive to their nonverbal signals. So they're, they're actually doing exactly what you're doing to me right now, which is they're nodding a little bit and they're looking at each other when they're talking. I'm just struck by how many classrooms we ask students to speak about something that they care about. And they look around the room and their classmates are looking out the window or looking, you know, looking at their phones and slouch and their body language says, I don't give a damn what you're saying right now. So I think that what I'm describing to you is I see this classroom as just being wired with constant signals of belonging among peers that, you know, and th- this is a classroom that where kids not only feel and behave differently, but this is like a positive outlier academically, like every kid, you know, I, He's one of the highest performing teachers in New York City. I'm just curious to hear how you react to that sort of description of belonging signals in the group. How do those connect to ideas from your evolutionary research? I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think there's nothing more important in the classroom than feeling that you belong. And feeling that you belong does two things. First, it creates a sense of what is known as psychological safety in the in the academic literature, which is that 
you know, if I belong, if you actually like me, you don't just tolerate me. You're not just doing this because you're paid to do it, or you're not just sitting next to me because that's where the alphabet lies, right? If I belong, then I can say stuff that you disagree with, and you're not going to reject me. And so if I can't do that, if I can't risk saying something you disagree with, then I can barely risk saying anything. And it also means that I can be wrong on occasion, that I can just get the wrong answer. Like a math class, there's a wrong answer. And it's threatening to have a wrong answer, but it's not threatening if I feel psychologically safe. And so, for example, I'm not sure if you've seen this. It's, it was well publicized, but it's a lovely effect that lots of people didn't run into. When Google looked at all the different things that makes their team successful, the single most important variable is psychological safety. And the reason for that is that you know, if we've got a really smart leader and we've got a bunch of people, well, maybe we're going to be a good group. But if we've got a really smart leader and a bunch of people who feel comfortable disagreeing with that really smart leader and with each other, now we've got a group mind that's way more than some of its individual parts. Whereas if we've got a group leader who's scary and smart, well, that's just the best we're ever going to be because I'm not going to disagree with him. And then if I don't ever disagree with him, he might go... He'll never have the chance to say, oh, that's actually a slight improvement on what I was suggesting, et cetera. So humans are always better in groups than they're individually, and they can always ratchet each other up. But I think what's often missing in a class like a math class is a sense that you belong. And then secondarily, what belonging also allows, if you can convince people that it's engaging, is that they have good prospects. And so... Good prospects are hard. They're hard to develop. If I joined a, a basketball team, it would be almost impossible to convince me that I could ever contribute because I'm such a terrible basketball player. But, you know, maybe just maybe if people were super patient with me and, and willing to, you know, wait for me and stuff like that, I would become a better dribbler and I could start to actually hit some baskets. And so in a math class, there's going to be some kids who's, who math is just not their strength. And if they really believe they belong, then they're going to be willing to go out on a limb and say, well, all right, I'm going to dive in. This may not be my best class that I'm ever going to take, but let me give it my best shot. And so you'll never get there. You'll never get to even finding out if you have good prospects if you don't have that initial feeling of belonging to begin with. It's encouraging to hear your response. And I think many teachers have a similar response, which is they feel they understand intuitively that belonging is profoundly important in the classroom. And it's one of the most important things to making students feel psychologically safe. But I think one of the things about Daenerys' class is also, I wanted to ask about the evolutionary evidence for this, is also that he's effective. In other words, one of the, you could have a lethal mutation of Daenerys' class where a teacher says, okay, that all that matters is belonging and it's making students feel good. But part of what convinces students that they want to belong is the sense that like the leader or the group is going somewhere and we're going to be productive. And maybe as an analogy, which is like evolutionarily, I am part of a group that is going to be successful. And I'm just thinking about it in my own life when I'm, when I'm part of a group that I don't feel like is going to be successful, it's not working. You know, I th think there's a part of me evolutionary that's like, I have to get out of this group because my survival depends on being in a group that is more high functioning, that it's a combination of like strong belonging, constant belonging signals, reminding people they belong, but also competence and productivity in a sense of like, we are, we are achieving things. Is there, is there any evidence for that notion that evolutionarily that that, that that was an important part of group formation, that people leave groups when they don't feel like they're, that they feel at risk when the group isn't capable of productivity and effectiveness? No, you, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, the, the, the sad truth is that belonging is a critical first ingredient, but as you point out, it's not the only ingredient. And for you to convince me that I have good prospects, for example, you've got, and I don't know how to do this, whatever this is yet, you've got to be a good coach slash teacher slash leader slash whatever, right? I'm not following you into the void. I'm following you because I believe you're taking me somewhere important. And so remember, we talked earlier on about what ancient groups look like, and, and it's always who has the best ideas. And so we evolved in these very small groups where everybody gets to pitch in, where there's like this deliberation phase where we all say our ideas and your ideas are just the best ones. And so now when we implement, we're going to do what you suggested. And what that means is following the best possible leader we can. And we've evolved to be able to find a new group if we're not happy with the, the leadership, the progress of the group. We start chafing for a new group is... That's right. And not only that, absolutely, we chafe for a new leader, too. So like you were a great leader yesterday, but today you're taking us down the wrong path. You know, sorry, that's just the way it goes. We're not following you anymore. You don't gain the right to lead us forever. You gain the right to lead us as long as you're doing a good job. One of the other things I was thinking about in watching Daenerys's class is just the power of routines. And I was thinking, as you know, like there's a lot of power and belonging in all of us knowing the procedure and doing it at the same time. I was thinking about the fact that as far as I know, every religion on earth sings or chants together. 
and that people feel some of the most profound sense of belonging in the moment when we're all doing something in the same way that's part of a ritual, which I think is fascinating because so much of the narrative in classrooms about making students feel important and belonging is about individualism and about you know connecting with each person individually. But a lot of what I see in great classrooms is routine is one word for it and ritual is another word for it. I think I read some research that some evolutionary biologists think that we, you know, we communicated through song before we communicated through speech. Well, music is like one of the most controversial, interesting things that we do, and nobody understands it. There's lots of great ideas, but we're, I don't believe that any of us have hit the nail on the head yet. We're working toward it. But what I would agree with you completely is that doing things in unison massively increase the degree to which you feel like you're a fellow member of an important group and the degree to which you feel like you belong in that group. And so I think that what Daenerys is doing in that sense with these rituals or routines is that he's doing two super important things like a military or a religion by working tightly together in unison we start to really connect with each other at a very subconscious level you know when two people talk to each other who who connect who are having who click that literally their pupils dilate together their brain waves start to come in synchrony with each other and so doing these things that bring about physical synchrony bring about that kind of mental synchrony and then the second part of the story that's so important is it also creates habits. And so when I tell you, okay, turn to the person next to him and tell him why you think that polynomial is correct or isn't correct. If you have to decide every time whether you're going to do that, it may not happen. But if you just do it automatically, you just do it out of habit. Whenever I say, turn to the next person and talk, that's just what you do. It's That's a good habit that you don't need to worry about anymore. It's the same as if every morning you have to decide if you want to go for a run. Well, a lot of mornings you're not going to go for a run. You want going for a run to be like brushing your teeth. You don't finish breakfast and go, huh, I wonder if I'll brush my teeth today. You just do it. And because you just do it, you don't even need to make the decision and it rolls off automatically. And that's what he's gaining in part when he does these routines, right? The people just do the key things that underlie their learning in that classroom. A cognitive scientist would say a routine hacks working memory that instead of spending your very, your very precious working memory thinking about whether I'm going to do it or what the process is, you're just thinking about the math. I wanted to ask you about Denarius's action of asking students to look at each other. Because when I see this in the classroom, it always reminds me of the section in your book on, I don't know if you call it the cooperative hypothesis, but the story of human sclera and white human scleras uh, for listeners is the white error on the pupil of your eyes. And we're the, I don't know if we're the only primate that has white sclera, but that advertising our gaze is actually an incredibly important part of human evolution. And I was wondering if you could just kind of tell the story of our eyes and how they came to be structured the way they are. Yeah, it's really interesting. If you look at our closest cousins, the chimpanzees, and even our more distant cousins, the other apes, you see that their eyes are entirely brown. Now, chimps are actually pretty clever, as are gorillas and orangutans, and they're capable of discerning the direction of another member of their species gaze. And so if you turn your head and gaze at something, they're smart enough to even know if you're looking at something they can't see versus something they can see. So, you know, they're nowhere near as bright as we are, but that's pretty darn smart to be able to discern gaze and things like that. But what's so interesting is nonetheless, they disguise the direction of their gaze by having their eyes be entirely brown. So they make it hard for other members of their species to tell where they're looking. We do the exact opposite. We advertise the direction of our gaze by having the outside of our eyes be white. And therefore, the second I look to the left, even if my head doesn't move, you know that I've looked to the left. And what that tells you is that it shows us that humans, by and large, were more cooperative with each other than they were competitive because they wanted other members of the group to know what had attracted their attention. Meaning that if I look to the left suddenly, it means that I want you to know so if it's a threat, you're going to help me deal with it. And if it's an opportunity, you're going to help me achieve it. Whereas if a chimp, if he looks to the left, he doesn't want the other chimp to know because it may be an opportunity he doesn't want the other chimp to know about. And so... It just tells you volumes that our eyeballs evolved in this kind of way. And what it also means, of course, is that our eyeballs are super important. And when you have direct gaze, all sorts of areas of your brain light up that do not light up when you're not gazing directly at somebody. And there's an amazing set of complicated rules. We don't even know how complicated they are because they're automatic for us. But the easiest way to look at what happens when those rules go awry is people with autism often don't know the rules. And I met this wonderful woman who was super bright, pretty far out on the spectrum. And she and I were chatting about the problems that she has with gaze. And she said, you know, first, my friend said, you never look me in the eye. And so I said, oh, OK, I can do that. And so she sat there staring at them in the eyes. And they're like, you're, you're doing that a little too much. And she goes, oh, well, how much am I supposed to do it? And they're like, well, I'm not totally sure, but not that long. And so what she started doing is literally she this is what she does. She goes, look, what? Three, look away. One, two, 
three, look one. And can you imagine how cognitively busy the poor woman is trying to do a rule that we all just do automatically? It's fascinating. Now, for example, when you're the speaker, you look away a lot more than when you're the listener because listeners try to show speakers that they're cued in and speakers try to talk around and think about other things. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of tiny little rules that we just don't even know we have. And you can predict how eye contact moves and shifts around conversations, et cetera. But there are ways that people can't even consciously articulate. That's fascinating. Can I also ask you about, in addition to, you know, I think you describe in the book the idea that if a chimpanzee sees a tasty fig on the forest floor, it doesn't want to see other chimpanzees looking because it's competing with them. But a human wants, we want to see where each other are looking because we're going to cooperate. But our eyes also communicate, you know, you describe this sort of constant messaging of group membership. You walk up to a group of other humans and you get a flirtatious glance, right? That's great news for you evolutionarily, or you get a hard stare and you think, "Uh oh, I'm going to have to fight for my status within the group. Or you're a teenager and you walk up to a group of your friends and they're all looking down at their iPhones and they don't look up at you at all. Right. And that's also like a, can you talk a little bit also about what we know about eye contact and eye gaze in social status and belonging in the group? It's, it's super interesting and, and remarkably impressive how good people are reading other people's eyes. And so when you talk to somebody, you would think that you would look at their mouth a lot because a big smile tells you happiness and a big frown tells you unhappiness, but we don't. We look at the eyes because a big smile in your mouth without big smiling eyes tells you something very different than a big smile in your mouth along with smiling eyes. So if you're interested, I always recommend people take a look at, you can Google it. It's called Reading the Mind in the Eyes. It's a test developed by Simon Baron Cohen. Simon Baron Cohen is one of the world's leading autism researchers and he developed this extraordinary test where you look at people's eyes, only their eyes, it's this narrow slice, and then you're asked, what are they feeling? And you often think you're guessing. You don't know the people. You don't know what they're feeling. You see this narrow slice, but you get it right over and over again. And it's not all of them because it's meant to be a hard test. But we're really, really good at looking at people's eyes and figuring out what it is that they have to say. And that would have played a critically important role in, in group interactions. Now, keep in mind, in between two groups, not so much, because once you're far away, you can't really do that anymore. But any time that you're trying to maintain bonds within the group, eye contact would have been mission critical. And the example that you give, for me, the most compelling one is you show up to a group of friends and they don't even look up for their phones. I mean, that's just like, it's, it's so draining. It's so it's such a it's such a signal that you don't matter if they don't bother to even make eye contact with you. And, and I don't think they mean it. You know, I always say, never attribute, well, a lot of people say this is me, but never attribute to malice what can be explained by incompetence, but what can also be explained by distraction. And so your friends don't mean to not look up to you, but it's a terrible signal for you, the recipient of that, especially when you're, you know, adolescents are much more socially engaged than the rest of us because they're starting to establish really important social relationships. And it's just an affront when that happens. And it just takes all of your energy away. It's fascinating. I think one of the other things that I find fascinating about schools and classrooms, that I would describe them as collective action problems, which is to run a great school or a great classroom, you have to be able to shape norms of behavior. And a norm is really a way of saying, you're, I'm going to ask people to make small daily sacrifices for the greater good of the institution, the group's goals. And if I can get everyone to do that, then we can achieve great things, right? If I can get everyone to, you know, if I can get everyone to resist the urge to tell a hilarious fart joke in the middle of chemistry lessons over and over again, which I would really like to do because I think everyone's going to think I'm really funny. Then we actually have the benefit of like, we have a great chemistry lesson and many of us can aspire to become doctors one day. But if a lot of people break that norm and I can't enforce, create, encourage that collective action, then the institution falls apart. And it strikes me that that is sort of the story of human history. And we live in a time when there, I'd say that like all the research that I've read says that lack of faith in institution is at an all time high. You know, I just, growing up, I was probably not the easiest student to have in class. And my, my father told me like, if the principal of your school ever calls me, like, so help you God, it doesn't matter if you're right. You can tell me whatever story you want. Like he, he is right. And you will, you will learn to abide because he was like, the institution matters. And a lot of times now I think, you know, parents have a very different reaction, which is like, well, that rule doesn't work for my child. I'm curious to hear how you think about what's your sense of how people have resolved the challenge of collective action throughout human history? Yeah, that's a great question. And it it leads to these kind of game theory talks about this a lot in, in economics and that you get a lot of what you might call local maxima that 
you know, you, there's a lot of solutions to collective action problems. There's usually one or maybe a very few really, really good solutions. And then there's a lot of suboptimal solutions. And there's a lot of solutions that are ghastly, but they're still better than the potential alternative. And the problem is you can think of these solutions as if they're all small mountain peaks in a vast valley of horribleness, right? Or, or we'll call it an ocean. Each one is an island. What you want to be is you want to be on the tallest island where everything's the best. But if you get on your own little island, which is medium crappy, it's still better than you as an individual still have. It's a Nash equilibrium. You're still doing the best thing you can do in the context of what everybody else is doing. And so as a for example, there are societies where nobody trusts anybody, where you don't even trust your siblings. And so you lock everything. Now, I could start this society toward moving in the right direction by unlocking my stuff. But then all that's going to happen is everybody's going to take it. And so you have to get some kind of big shift where people start to trust each other again to, to be able to benefit by working together. But it's super hard to start that process, right? And the example that you give is a perfect one where, yes, I could really benefit personally and be the cool guy in the class if I keep telling fart jokes because I got a lot of good fart jokes, right? But, but the problem is that that's wildly disruptive for everybody. And so what you end up having to do is when you get teachers who are either lovable enough or charismatic enough or in some other way can convince people it's in their own best interest to hold off on telling that fart joke till later, then you get something where the whole, again, becomes something more than the sum of its parts and where you're at the tallest local maxima, where you've really achieved something. That's super hard to get. And as you say, it's it's literally an analogy for our entire evolutionary history. Those societies that have been successful are the ones where people trust each other, where people work together incredibly effectively, and where therefore they they basically, it sounds horrible, but they overran all the other neighboring societies. And then the neighboring societies go either, we're either going to adopt that strategy to survive or, you know, we're just going to get incorporated. And one of those two things have always happened. And so how do you get there? Well, one of the ways you get there is, as you say, is trust. And right now, trust in the United States is mutual trust of everybody else is, is at a low. There's a number of reasons for that. It's an unfortunate state of events. It does mean that the society can function as well as it could when people fundamentally trusted each other more. Is your sense that, I mean, this may be wildly speculative and beyond, you know, what research can tell us, but are there, there must have been societies that began to get on the downward slope of social cohesion and trust. And some of those societies must have, you know, like just passed out of history, but there must have also been societies or groups of people maybe that, that re-established a culture of, of productive trust? Do you have any sense for what this process might have looked like, you know, thousands of years ago? Yeah, it's a super interesting question. And what we're now talking about is what, what we often refer to as cultural evolution. So it doesn't require biological change in the individual. It just requires some kind of change in the way the group functions. There's some really, really interesting work on this line by people like Joe Henrik at Harvard, Michael Muthu Krishna at London School of Economics, a lot of these folks doing really interesting work. And one of the things that you see is sometimes Rules that an institution establishes, maybe for other reasons, have these sort of knock-on effects that often are bad. These unintended consequences are not what you want, but often are good. And so, for example, one of the arguments, you know, people often ask, why did Europe emerge so ascendant at the time that it did? Why did that happen there? You know, all over the world, there's other places, you know, China was way ahead at this point, Africa's way ahead at that point, the Muslim world's way ahead at another point. Why then was Europe so effective? And what Henrik argues in this lovely book that came out recently, uh, The Weirdest People in the World, Weird Standing for Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich and Democratic, is that the um, medieval Catholic Church in the outlawing cousin marriage sort of destroyed the power base of clans where everybody was constantly supporting their own clan. No matter what you did wrong, you're my cousin. I'm going to stand up for you in face of the other person. And just by destroying cousin marriage and not allowing it anymore, which I don't know what their motive was for, frankly, but the consequence was we now start to create much more of a market economy where strangers have to get incorporated into your world and you have to start treating other people fairly. And his argument is that this made an enormous difference for the success of Europe, that people start voting with their feet, going to democratic places, forming guilds, doing all sorts of things that are no longer clan-based. I think that's fascinating because it's a sort of, it's similar to the like, well, the story we tell about evolution is an individualist story of evolution when it should be a group story. I think when most people think about the outlawing of Cousin marriage, they think it's an individualist story about reducing biological defects and abnormalities that happen when, when cousins breed. 
But actually, you're saying it's about social, it's more likely to be about social defects, that when you break cousin bonds, you break clannishness. Once you break clannishness, so let's just take as a for example right now, when you do surveys of people in, let's take a country that's not functioning well, where the government is just keeps falling down, we'll say South Africa. And if you do a survey in South Africa, and, and my party wins the vote, and you're my cousin, and I hire you to be the municipal manager, you don't know the first thing about municipalities or managing, but you're my cousin. And then you ask people, was that the moral thing to do? In South Africa, they go, yeah, of course Bill has to hire his cousin. That's, of course, the moral thing to do that. He got the job. He's in the position of power. He now needs to help his family. And in places like the United States that are these impersonal market-based economies, we go, no, his cousin doesn't have any training in the relevant things. That's nepotism. And so what happens when you break the rule of clans is you break the actual underlying moral structure that in one case, well, yeah, it's good for your clan, but it's bad for society. It's not like one's a win and one's a lose. It depends on your unit of observation, right? It depends on what you're measuring. Right. I think what you're saying is the clan is the only institution. You can't have other institutions that, that function effectively to provide other values in society because the value system of the clan always overrides it. Yeah, it's going to win. And it, and it has to win. It would be, if, if I don't hire you, you come to me like, what's wrong with you, Bill? And my whole family is going to ostracize me. And I just believe it's the right thing to do. And so in a world where that's very clan-based, and much of the world is, it just happens to be that these systems of government came out of, at least that's Henrik's argument in The Weirdest People. And I hope he wouldn't disagree with anything I'm saying about this, you know. But the notion is that once you undermine that clan structure and you start to turn the world into an impersonal market economy, then the individual clans may not benefit anymore, but society at large benefits massively. So you move from a local maximum that's perfectly fine, you know, we're all looking out for each other, and that works very well in small-scale societies, but it does not scale up very well into large-scale societies. And so it goes from working perfectly fine to being a pretty bad local maxima, which you can then improve dramatically. I want to ask you some farther afield questions. First, I'd like to ask you a little bit about parenting. Something we talk about a lot on this podcast is something deeply important to, to me personally. I know you've just had a, a little baby. Congratulations. And you have several adult children, so you can kind of see the process from the beginning and the end. But you also must have a fairly unique view on parenting, given how much you think about and study history of evolution, history of group formation, history of families. Does your research affect how you think about raising children? And if so, how? Yeah, it does. And it in interesting kind of ways, you know, there's nothing more important in my mind than parenting. If, you know, if you think about all the influences you're going to have, probably the most important influence you can ever have is parenting. And in one sense, I 100% I endorse that. In another sense, it completely flies in the face of research. And so if you read Robert Plowman's book or Paige Harden's book or any of these recent books on behavioral genetics, one of the bottom lines is what a behavioral geneticist calls a shared environment, i.e. your parental family home, only accounts for a less than 10% of the variability in who you become as an adult. And so when we think about parenting as I'm trying to make my son or daughter turn into a wonderful adult, well, you're not going to see, that's not your job. You're not going to have much influence there. You can have an influence, but largely by helping them choose better peers, you know, putting them in an environment where you think their peers are a good influence on them, because you as a parent are going to have very little influence there. What the data show is that about 50% of the variability in who they become is genetic, about 50% is environmental, but of that environmental component, almost all of it is outside the home. And so we think as parents that we're shaping our kids, but we're not. But what we are doing is we're providing them with a happy childhood, which serves as a basis of strength and support and security for the rest of their lives and a nice time. And so I think that my job is to provide them with a happy, secure, safe home, and then they're going to become who they become. And when sperm met egg, I mostly did that job on who they're going to become. And then I hope I get lucky. I hope the world's good to them. If I don't really, I'm not fond of their peer group, what can I do to try to improve it? But beyond that, I can't do much to shape who they become. Fascinating. So you're more or less, I wouldn't say a hands-off parent, but you're certainly not a helicopter parent. That's what I hear you say. No, no. I. It's hard to not be a helicopter parent because... You want to protect your children from the bad things that could happen to them. But at the same time, that undermines your children in many ways. It communicates to them that you don't think they can handle it. It prevents them from getting the opportunities to handle it. And in the end, you're not actually determining who they're going. You know, you're not making their life better anyway. And so... You know, I was raised feral. We're like dandelions. And because uh, and, that was the 1960s, yeah, right? Of course, of course. And now we just don't raise kids feral anymore. And so you, you can't quite do that. It's not even safe. Like when I was five years old, I walked a half a mile to school in minus 20 degree weather. That was safe because the streets were covered with five-year-olds walking to school in minus 20 degree weather. So they could look out for each other. But now your kid could get lost and end up in a snowdrift, right? So... So you can't quite do the things you used to be able to do, but what you can do is 
every time possible, try to allow your kids to make their own mistakes as well as, you know, find their own way. I want to transition to asking you about your writing process, if you don't mind. Sure. In part because I, I really look forward to reading your new book. The Social Leap is tremendous. But I was also struck in, in listening to a podcast that you did with Chris Williamson. You described, I mean, you must have, having written several books, you know, writing, writing books is an incredibly onerous, brutal process. You know, every time I write one, I think I'm never going to write one again. And then I do. But you also describe, in addition to the sort of individual parts of research and writing, you describe as a major influence that you had these sort of bi-weekly meetings with the faculty at UQ where you discussed a lot of the ideas that ultimately came up in the book. And you said, after a while, I felt like I had my head around it, which I think is fascinating because you're describing more or less a groupish influence on your own writing process. I would just love to hear you talk a little bit more about whether you think there's anything to there, whether I'm grasping at straws here and what those meetings were like and how they, how they you think they shaped you and your writing process intellectually. Yeah, so I think you've hit the nail on the head. For, for me, when I sit down and write, I actually am in my own world and nobody else even exists and I'm just doing, I'm, I'm all by myself. But I can't do that until I've talked to a lot of people about a lot of things and I have to run my ideas by them and have to and they go, that's stupid and here's why. And I go, oh my gosh, that is stupid and here's why. It's super duper helpful to me to have group conversations about any idea that matters. They never emerge from my mind fully developed. They emerge from my mind half-baked as sometimes they're stupid, sometimes they're not, but they need development. They need other people's re response to them that gets me to reflect more. Sometimes the responses come from my students who know almost nothing and they'll ask this question that I never even occurred to me. And I go, wow, that is a great question. I don't know the answer. Let me think about this more. At UQ, I was really lucky to have uh, Thomas Sudendorf and Brendan Zietz as colleagues. And we had this lab, that's the one you're referring to, where we met fortnightly and we uh, every other week. And we um, basically would either read a paper or talk about, a, you know, maybe somebody give a presentation or talk about new data. And we would just go back and forth. And it was this wonderful environment that was wildly psychologically safe. We all disagreed with each other constantly. But at the same time, there was lots and lots of give and take where all that mattered was the ideas. Now, I I had the big advantage that growing up that my father thought every single idea I ever had was crap, but he thought I was a lovely guy. And so I learned early on to separate the person from the idea. And it doesn't, like, it's important that it not feel like a personal attack when somebody says that idea is crap, because maybe that idea is crap. And, and what you really want to do is make that idea better. So there's no way I could have written The Social Leap without the constant 10 years of chit-chat, 15 years of talking uh, to Thomas and Brendan and all the students who've gone through the lab, tons and tons of brilliant students and postdocs. And all of those people shape my ideas to turn out to be something that's coherent rather than this jumbled mess that they started out as. Well, it's really interesting because the book is not narrow, right? It's incredibly wide ranging. And I, I just find you drawing on research from so many different fields it's it almost has like a polymath vibe. Maybe some of does some of that come from the idea that like you you really got inside the mind of of a couple of colleagues, you know, as you said for ten years, like hearing who I assume do different research from your own. Yeah, absolutely. The thing is that there's no way that one person can become expert in all these fields. And so what one of the wonderful things about being an academic is that you get to eventually rely on the expertise of lots and lots of other people. So Brendan Zietz is a behavioral geneticist. When he arrived, I knew almost nothing about the field. And then 10 zillion arguments later, I'm not exactly a behavioral geneticist, but at least I'm informed by those ideas. Thomas Sudendorf is an evolutionary developmental psychologist who does comparative work between chimps and humans and also human infants. And so I didn't even see the value of that work necessarily. I thought it would sound interesting, but I had no idea what it could teach us when, when, until he and I started these meetings. And so for me, that's what enabled me to try to think about these things in much broader ways. Your mention of human versus chimp research is reminding me that I meant to ask you about humans over-imitating. Yeah, so over-imitation is a super interesting thing. The early experiments, what they did is they presented human children and chimpanzees with a box that was opaque and that you wouldn't know how to open it. And then they showed them how to open it by tapping on it three times and then poking it with the stick and it pops open. And inside the box is something that the human or the chimp wants, maybe a grape, maybe a sticker. And then they did the same thing, but they did it with a transparent box. And with the transparent box, you can see that tapping the stick 
has no function whatsoever because the box is transparent. You're tapping on an irrelevant spot. The second you poke it, that's the latch that matters. And what they found was when you did the opaque box, humans and chimps, little children and chimpanzees do exactly what you do. When you do the transparent box, humans still do exactly what you do, but chimps go, screw the tapping, and they just poke the lever and open it. Now, that's super interesting. It makes humans look dumb, but we're not. And so then the question is, why would we do that? And what it comes down to is, Young humans think, well, this is his box and not mine. I cannot see what that would possibly do to tap, tap, tap on the side. But he, he's my teacher and he knows better than I in this context. I'd be wise to follow what he does. And it turns out there's a gazillion things that humans do that we don't need to fully understand so long as we over imitate. Or can't understand fully. Sometimes can't, absolutely. Early processes of making beer or creating food food out of wheat, more steps than you could hold in your working memory, right? You have to assume that there's value in what you're imitating. Yeah, there's that. There's more steps than human memory, but there's also could be micro, like microorganisms, for example. Humans did not evolve to understand that germs could possibly kill us. And in fact, when germ theory first got promoted, people were like, no, that's absurd. How could something, it's so small, I can't see it kill me. Well, we nonetheless had theories about how we ought to behave that, that were often from over imitation. Like, so if you got really sick, I'm not touching your jacket. Something could happen to me. It could be this magical process. Well, no, it makes, I shouldn't touch your jacket. Whatever made you sick might be all over your jacket. And so it's prudent of me to avoid it. And so there's lots of ways that we over-imitate, either because the science was opaque to us in our ancestral world, or because as you say, there were so many steps in the process that I can't possibly understand all of them. I better just do them. So our presumption in over-imitating is that there is value in the aggregated wisdom of the process. And I should respect that. We're the only creatures with cumulative culture. Is that the connection? Yeah, I would say that we're the only creatures with, with cumulative culture, and but we're also, it's this idea that there's costs and benefits to everything, right? And so lots of silly rituals can get established and never go away because all we're doing is over-imitating forever, right? And you could just take forever to do something that could have been really simple. But part of our cumulative culture means that we don't need, to, as you say, we don't need to understand every step of the way. Every individual doesn't need to. And I might eventually even, like maybe it's not that complicated and when I'm an adult, I'll have it perfectly. But when I'm six, I still need to do whatever that is. I need to effectively eat that. And so, you know, we know this, for example, here in Australia, one of the great early tales of exploration, the explorers died in the middle of the wilderness because they, after going way up north, they, they had a really, really, really well-provisioned camp. They they just took too long. The camp assumed that they were, were not going to make it and left without them. And they literally arrived to that camp later that day. The embers were still warm from the fire. And then they all died. The interesting thing is that random 12-year-old Aboriginal kid living in that exact same spot could have lived forever. You know, there's nothing that that they that wasn't available to them, but they didn't know how to access the foods that were there. They didn't understand what the dangers were. And over-imitation allows you to have that. Bill Von Heppel, thank you. You've shared so much wisdom and insight. So I'm grateful for the conversation and grateful for your book, The Social Leap, which we've been talking primarily about. But also, just in closing, will you tell listeners the title of your new book and where they can find out more about your work? I don't have a title yet, I'm afraid. I would love a good title. It's it's provisionally titled Unsiloing the Self. And I'm not sure if that's going to be the final title because I'm not sure it makes sense. But basically, it's about this conflict between autonomy and connection. It's going to be published by the same by HarperCollins, again, the same publisher who brought up the social leap. And it's scheduled for next year. But it's only landed on my editor's desk a week ago. And she's inundated until after Thanksgiving. And it'll be something Sometime next year, I'm, I'm hopeful that I'll get to do another book tour, that I'll be in the U.S., that I'll get to follow it all up. That's what I'm really looking forward to. But all of this is as yet not nailed down. Fantastic. Well, I just I hope that people seek out The Social Leap and seek out your new book when it's out and when it has a title, because I'm sure it will be exceptional also. Thank you. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at, at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.